Um, all right, so we're going to jump into a new series, uh, which I'm excited about. Born is the King. It's going to be our Christmas series. And, and what we're going to do is we're actually uh, going to be walking through four different uh, Christmas carols. And so some well-known songs, some hymns that we sing every year that, that even society, you know, sings these songs. They may not fully understand the meaning and the rich theology behind these songs, and yet they're very popular. So, uh, I, you know, I'm curious about what your favorite songs are. Those of you watching online, feel free to, you know, punch it in. What, what are your favorite songs? I know my wife's all-time favorite song uh, is uh, All I Want for Christmas is You by, by Mariah Carey. Is that right? Um, it's just every time it comes on, I'm always like, hey, boys, this is, my, this is, this is mommy's favorite song. Uh, just, it just, she loves that song. Um, and, uh, anyways, it, it is a fun song, but it's, it's kind of becoming a classic now. You know, it's kind of one of those old, old songs now, unfortunately it's, you know, it'd be on the oldies station if there was an oldies station anymore. I don't know, but so I'm, I'm curious about what maybe some of your favorite songs are. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about, I know Paul put on Facebook the other day, Hey, what are some of your favorite Christmas hymns and, and carols? And, and so for me, um, and I know this is, uh, I've, I mentioned this a couple years ago, but my, my dad long time ago, back in the, in the late eighties, uh, wrote a Christmas play called When I Think of Christmas. And he's, he's been passed away now for, for almost 21 years. Uh, but he, he wrote this play, and it's, it's a musical. It's, it's a, lot of, a lot of choirs and handbells and that kind of thing, kind of old-fashioned. Uh, but I've always loved these uh, songs that he wrote. And one of them that is my favorite is one that's just called Praise God Who Reigns on High. And it just starts off with this phrase of Praise God Who Reigns on High for giving us His Son, one starry eve in Bethlehem, Messiah's work begun. I know normally I sing a lot, uh, but I'm not going to sing this. It's very uh, choral, uh, and I don't really have, a, have an operatic voice like that. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm thankful for my dad. Every time I come around Christmas, I just have these, these songs that none of, nobody else knows, right? It's just me and probably my immediate family that knows these old songs, and I think about them all the time that I'm grateful for. So the, the four songs that we're going to be going through, though, today we're going to be looking at the first Noel we're going to look at O Come, All Ye Faithful, Silent Night, and O Holy Night. And so that's what we're going to be doing. So this week, we're looking at the first Nobel, the birth of a king. And so I've got a couple different passages that I'm going to be walking through, Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2 and portions of those uh, passages. So feel free to turn to those if you want to follow along, um, or feel free to uh, just watch. Everything will be on, on the screen uh, and online as well. And so you can read along with that. But what is Noel? And it's one of those things that you know, we sing it all the time. The first Noel, 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 Noel. What does it mean? Uh, well, in Latin, it literally means uh, birth. <laughs> it, it means to be born in Latin, and that's where it comes from. But also in Old French, like we have Old English and all these different words that we kind of still, you know, some things carry on. Um, in, in Old French, it actually just meant Christmas. To say Noel was, you know, Mary Noel, uh, that's that's what it meant. It was the birth of a king. It was the birth of Christ. And that's how that word used. And so when we talk about this idea, the first Noel, right, the first true birth of a king, of Jesus, of this Messiah. And so I've just got a, a small little outline, just three three main points that I'm taking right out of this hymn that we're going to sing right after, which is really fun too. I always love when we talk about um, our, our music and our worship, uh, and then we get to sing it. It's always fun to me. So uh, we're going to be looking at the shepherds, we're going to be looking at uh, the king of Israel, and we're going to be looking at the magi. And so let me just read the lyrics to this. The first Noel, the angel did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. In fields where they lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 born is the king 
of Israel. And so I want to just focus in on these shepherds and their joy. And if you, and those of you who are, are here, you can see that there's this nativity set. I'm going to be gentle with it uh, because I think it was a former custodian of First Baptist who, who made these. He hand-carved them and painted them. I think that was a story I heard. So I'm going to be gentle. Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to use kind of an object lesson. So those of you online, I think you can see these. Um, and, I, and I did this a couple years ago, and, and so, but, it, but it was a couple years ago. So I know you don't remember it because I don't remember it. Uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk through again, looking at something that we see in a nativity set that, we, that we, we see all the time. And some of you may even have one of these up in your house or your apartment or your dorm room. And I just want to look at this and say, okay, is this the scene when we look at the birth of our Savior? So the first thing, though, is the shepherds and their joy that their, their joy is overcome in what's happening to them. But who are these shepherds? Their night, I spent, I spent the night with my son uh, under the Christmas lights. We put an air mattress up and, and we lay, it was, he, he, he loved it. He slept like a champ. I am not a good sleeper on air mattress. I don't know anybody who's a good sleeper on air mattress except my son. Um, and we slept under the Christmas lights. And as we were sleeping there, before we fell asleep, we watched the Charlie Brown Christmas. And, and Charlie Brown and the whole cartoon, the whole story, he's, he's depressed, he's anxious, and he's, ah, what's, this whole, what's the whole point of Christmas? It's, it's over-commercialized, and all these presents, and all the cards that everyone's getting, and he's not getting anything. You know, and Snoopy's getting all these cards and presents, and he's not getting anything, and he's all depressed. And so he goes to, to Lucy for some psychiatric help. You know, she's got the little booth and psychi- psychiatry help, and, you know, five cents. And, um, and, and she's like, well, you got all the, well, maybe you have a fear of this. Maybe you have a fear of this. And she finally says, you, maybe you have a panophobia, which is the fear of everything. And he goes, yes, that's it. I, I'm just afraid of, of everything. I don't, I don't like what's happening. I don't, I don't like Christmas and I don't understand the point of it. And then he's directing a Christmas play and he still is like, I don't understand what the whole point of this is. And Linus comes out of this blanket and he says, let me explain to you the true meaning of Christmas. And he just recites Luke chapter two. And, and it's just this joy that the true meaning of Christmas and the joy that comes out of this season and everything that comes out of this, that we have the Virgin Mary who gives birth to Jesus. And without this, without God taking on flesh, which is an oxymoron, that you have the God and the King of the universe being born and laying into a manger. But without that, there is no death. There is no resurrection. There is no ascension and there is no second coming that he needs to take on flesh. That's why we celebrate this every single year. That's why we celebrate Easter every single year because it's, this is, this is our salvation. So I want to just read and kind of, I'm just going to read one little portion here of Luke and then, and then I'm going to talk about it. And then we're going to read through the passage here of Luke chapter two, verses 18 through 16, verses eight, verse eight, excuse me. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks, at night. So historically, what would happen is they had these towers and they were called Megal Adar. That's the Hebrew word for a watchtower of the flock. And, and they're just these watchtowers, they would get a high ground and they could see over their flock because uh, there were a lot of sheep. And, and as we're going to see that there were probably every single year, there was, a, there was a, 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 sheep, a sheep sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem two times a day, morning and evening. So that's right, 365 times two, right? So over 700 sheep every single year. And to maintain that, you got to have a lot of sheep. All right, and so that, that, they would get up on these towers. They would watch over their sheep in these Magal Adars. And we have this idea of the watchtower of the flock or Magal Adar all over the place in our scriptures. And so I want to go back to Genesis, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 35, and starting in verse 19. It says, so Rachel died, 
um, Abraham's wife. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephratah. That is Bethlehem, okay? So we get, we're kind of getting a little bit of a geography story here. As you have Ephratah, that is Bethlehem. And over her tomb, sorry, Jacob's wife, sorry, Jacob's wife, uh, Rachel. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Megal Adar. So there's this famous Megal Adar, this watchtower of the flock, right there around Bethlehem in the area, in this region. This is significant. All right, so but we have to ask our question, have to ask the question, who in the world are these certain poor shepherds that we sing about in this carol? Who are these poor shepherds? Because if, if you're like me and if you, you know, grew up in the church, maybe you've heard this before, that, that the shepherds were the lowest of the low. And in a lot of ways, they were. Uh, within Jewish communities, you weren't allowed to be around uh, feces, which obviously there's going to be a lot of that around sheep. You weren't allowed to be around dead animals. Uh, and so if sheep were to die or were attacked and, and were killed, then you had to handle a dead body. And so they were, they were unclean in that sense. So it was always like the, the poorest of the poor, right? And this idea, these poor shepherds there. And, and, and God shows up to these poor individuals, you know, the low of the lows. And that's true, but, but who are these shepherds in particular? Because I think there's something very interesting. And so one commentary, uh, Alfred uh, Eidersheim, uh, we'll say, uh, he, says, he says this, but as we pass from the sacred gloom of the cave out into the night and the skies all glow with starry brightness, its loneliness is now Peopled. Its silence is now made vocal from heaven, and there is nothing now to conceal but much to reveal, though the manner of it would seem strangely incongruous to Jewish thinking. And yet Jewish tradition may here prove both illustrative and helpful. Okay, so, so what is it about Jewish tradition that we can learn about this manger scene and about who these shepherds are? Again, going back to Micah chapter 6, another uh, minor prophet in the Old Testament, we have this idea of this watchtower of the flock. As for you, Megaladar, as for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold and daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored, restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter, will come to daughter Jerusalem, right? So there's, there's something about this tower. There's something about this watchtower of the flock. Alfred continues and he says, this Megaladar was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks. It's pastured in the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. Okay, so, so he's saying, okay, and he's going to say a passage in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is an old Jewish writing, and, and even the Talmud, there's another aspect. Mishnah and the Talmud were these extra biblical Jewish writings. So he's saying, hey, there's something in the Mishnah that sheds some light on this. And so I was able to look that up and found the quote from the Mishnah. It says, they may not rear, this is the law, this is a law. So you had the Old Testament laws for the Jews, but you also had the Mishnah and the Talmud that were extra more laws to keep them from breaking these laws. It says, now they may not rear small cattle because they damage the sown fields in the land of Israel, but they may rear them in Syria or in the wilderness that are in the land of Israel. Okay, so you're not allowed to do this by Jerusalem, so small cattle. Okay, so we can take our little manger scene and we can get rid of our cow and we can get rid of our donkey. Okay, these, these aren't part of the, they're not there. They're not there. They don't exist. And they exist in real life, but they weren't there. Okay, because it was illegal. It was against the law to have small Cattle, again, moving into the Talmud, it says cattle found all the way from Jerusalem to Magal Adar in the same vicinity in all directions are considered, if male, as whole offerings and a female peace offerings. What's happening? All the sheep and the shepherds there are sheep that are destined to be made sacrifices in Jerusalem. 
And so these lowly, poor shepherds that were there were priests, most likely. There were priests for everything, if we think about it. There were priests for, for uh, animals to actually pr- for, um, performing the sacrifice. There were animal people for, for cooking food. There were people that were uh, priests that did everything, that played trumpets and priests that, that washed dishes. And they're just priests for everything. And there were also shepherd priests. And so we think about these shepherds, these lowly, poor shepherds, these certain poor shepherds, right? And there's one here with his little, little ewe lamb in his arms, and he's got the little lamb in front of him. Okay, maybe, maybe they would have been there. And I think that's very possible in this Magal Adar. All right, so, so what's, the, what's the point here? So again, this passage in, in the Mishnah might be uh, helpful. A passage in Mishnah, which we just read, led to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices and accordingly that shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. Continuing on, another, just another commentary, because again, I don't, I don't want you to take my word for this. I want to you know, put, some, put some people up in front of you. It says, but these were in all likelihood very special shepherds. We have already seen how the temple morning and evening in an unblemished lamb was offered as a sacrifice to God to see that the supply of perfect offerings was always available to temple authorities. They had their own private sheep flocks. And we know that these flocks pastured near Bethlehem. It is most likely that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen. It is a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now, as we read this Luke 2 story, again, I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about these priest shepherds who are looking and watching over sheep that are destined to die. And they're in this Magal Adar, this watchtower of the flock, as they're watching over their sheep. So here's it, here it is again in Luke chapter two. It says, and there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping, flock, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, claws lying in a manger. How is that a sign? I mean, if you think about it, right? If you're, if you're a shepherd and you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're out in, a, in the wilderness and you're, and you're watching your flock and an angel says, here's gonna be your sign. You're gonna find a baby swaddled lying in a manger. How's that a sign? I, I don't understand. Okay, maybe the manger thing, but just it's a baby wrapped in, in claws. I mean, wouldn't that, doesn't every newborn baby get, get wrapped right up tight and, and held tight? But lying in a manger, now that's, that's interesting. Now what happens? As we continue reading, it says, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, what do they say? Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. How did they know where to go? Right? How, do, how do they know where to go other than this baby lying in a manger? And just one last little quote here on this. It says, the Jewish tradition in some dim manner apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from that Magal Adar where shepherds watch temple flocks all year round. Of the deep symbolic significance of such coincidence is needless to speak. And this guy just moves on. But there's so much significance here. It's unreal the significance that happens in this moment. 
Because what would happen in the basement or the bottom area of that Magaladar was the birthing center. And what would happen, right? If you remember going, remember the good old days when you could go to the state fair and with 200 million other people and, and you know, rub shoulders, it was still, it grossed you out before COVID, right? Uh, we'll see how that happens. But you go into the birthing center, the miracle of birth center, right? Which is just, is always kind of gross, but you know, you can see this thing happen. That's what the basement of this was. And what would happen though, is when a, a little lamb was born, they would take that lamb and they would wrap it tightly and they would place it in a stone manger that would have been in there or wooden manger. Why? So it wouldn't get up and try to walk and scuff itself and hurt itself because if it scuffed itself or broke a leg or did something, it's now blemished and it's no longer destined and good enough and qualified to be a temple sacrifice. So there's a deep significance in this idea that Jesus is born in the same area that these temple sheep would have been born and he would have been wrapped in claws and lied in a manger to signify he was born to die. Here is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Perfect sacrifice. I don't think it's needless to speak. I think it's incredibly powerful. And my dad's uh, song, it's almost like my dad knew what he was talking about when he wrote these songs. He says, the swaddling clothes of death that wrapped him on that night foretold our father's plan of love to bring salvation's light. That's what it's all about. That's what the incarnation, that's what Christ taking on flesh is all about. So we have Mary and Joseph, we have baby Jesus lying in the manger, and we've got the, the sheep. There's something significant about these sheep and this shepherd. So let's move on. We have born is the king of Israel. Born is the king of Israel. And the, 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 again, the, the hymn, Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel. How, how is it that we, I'm not an ethnic Jew, we've talked about this many times if you've been coming to Lower Town. How is it that we get to sing about this king of Israel? I'm not part of Israel. Am I? We sing this in our, in our hymn, Psalm 130, uh, where it says, our shepherd, good and true is, true is he who has at last his Israel freed from all our sin and sorrow? How do we get to sing that? How do we get to equate ourselves with Israel? And this is a, a, big, a big topic that I'm gonna try to fly through and try to make a little bit of sense of. Context is really important and I don't have time to really get into context of all these passages. Someday we'll preach the book of Romans, but we're not gonna have a chance. But before I get to Romans, I wanna read a passage from Galatians chapter six. The apostle Paul says this, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What's he saying? By following the law or not following the law. The Old Testament law means anything. By going to church regularly every Sunday or missing church every Sunday doesn't mean anything. By partaking in communion or not partaking in communion doesn't mean anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who followed this rule to the Israel of God. He's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about all who follow Christ. All who believe in the promises that have been fulfilled in God and through this little babe taken on flesh and taking our sins on the cross. Moving on into, again, Romans chapter nine, the context, we have to ask our question as we read the word Israel, especially in the New Testament, what is it talking about? Because there are times where the word Israel means ethnic Israelites. And there are times where it means the church, everyone who believes. So in Romans chapter six is a perfect example of this, starting in verse six, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What? What's that mean? So if I'm, I'm an ethnic Israelite, you're telling me I'm not an Israelite, Paul? What do you mean? 
nor because they are his descendants, that they are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Those who believe in the promises of God and it is fulfilled in Christ. Moving on, Romans chapter 11. And so what happens here? How is it that we can sing Israel? Because we've been grafted in. It says, if some of the branches have been broken off, that is part of ethnic Israel, that they've been broken off, that God made a way for them. He gave them his word. He gave him, they had them promises and yet they, dis, they did not believe. And they've been broken off. And now you Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, you now have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root. That is why we can sing, born is the king of Israel. Because we are Israel, again, depending on the context. So moving on into Luke chapter 2, these are probably some of my favorite verses. I feel like I say that every time I preach. It's just a favorite verse in the Bible. Luke chapter 2, 25 to 32, it says this. Now there was a man, it's right after Christ is born. So now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That was a word I had to look up. Consolation, what does that mean? I I think of like, remember like when you played played sports back then, there was always a consolation bracket or a consolation prize. What does that mean, right? It's it's really, that's what it is. It's the the losers, right? It's people who have been been beat up and been down. The consolation prize, when you look this up, is someone offering comfort after a loss. That's a consolation prize. You lost, but here's, here's your participation trophy, right? But this is a consolation. This is, you've been beat down and suffering under sin and death for thousands of years. The consolation now is Christ. He is the one who's gonna offer comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him, on Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus uh, to uh, Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, which would have been circumcision on the eighth day uh, and a sacrifice. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, listen to this song that he sings. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles to all nations, to all people, not just ethnic Israelites, and the glory of your people, Israel, that we are all one in this child. Talked about this a couple weeks ago of our, let our light shine before men in in a city on a hill. That that, that was Jerusalem, but now it's not Jerusalem that's going to be light to the Gentiles. This child is a light to all nations and the glory of your people, Israel. The third group that I want to highlight is the Magi. And I want to highlight their sacrifice. And this isn't just necessarily about their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and while that's, that's important, well, we got to think about what happened. Where'd they come from? We don't know a lot about them. But again, as we look at this and we look at the story, we look at the, at the nativity scene, right? There's always these magi, these three, there's always three wise men. We have no idea why there was only three. The scripture doesn't say there was three. We, the, people just assume that because there's three gifts. Uh, but we don't know. We have no idea, but what we do know is that when they come to Jerusalem, to King Herod, and they say, where is this king? Where's the king the Jews been born? And what do they do? They, he said, oh, and they, well, I'm going to read the passage, but it's been three years. 
So the wise men were not here. They didn't go see baby Jesus. They saw toddler Jesus and offered them gifts. All right, so every time, and I, I kind of do this, it's kind of mean, uh, and I'm not, I'm not uh, OCD, I'm not, um, but when I see nativity scenes, I actually will grab the wise men and I'll just move them like a distance away because they weren't there, but they're coming. They're coming, but they're not there. Okay, so I'm gonna just move them over here. There we go, okay? All right, they're not there. They weren't at the scene, okay? Now they come, but what's their sacrifice, right? We don't know where they came from. We just know they came from a far away. They came from the east, these wise men, these kings that came, that they were wealthy, they were called wise men. And this is where things get interesting because as we read even the hymn, uh, we know that they at least traveled at least a thousand miles. They at least came from somewhere in Iraq, which would have been at least a thousand miles to say, we're gonna get up, we're gonna travel a thousand plus miles to go see whatever is that's happening over here. And what is it that motivated them? They obviously, they must've had some knowledge of the scripture. They must've known that some Messiah was coming. They didn't know all the details behind and by the birth, but they saw the star. It says they looked up. And as we sing it, they, they look it. They look it up and saw a star shining in the yeast beyond them far. And to the earth, it gave great light. And so it continued both day and night. Now, what's interesting about this is that when we talk about stars, and if these were wise men, they would have known, I can't travel a thousand miles and chase down a star. <laughs> okay, that, that would, that's not wise. And so if they knew the, the stars, and if they were able to follow, and they looked and they saw a light, and maybe it wasn't moving, it was stationary over where this child was and where Jesus was, and they noticed it and said, wow, something's going on over there. Now let's go track that down. Let's go follow that light, whatever it may be. At great cost, at great sacrifice. There's uh, this uh, new Jupiter and Saturn right now are getting really close to you know aligning, and it's kind of been dubbed the Christmas star because it only happens every 800 years. And maybe maybe that was it, but I don't think so because I think if they're wise men, I think they would have known. Oh, those are planets, right? We we can track them. We know, so we're not going to go march a thousand miles to go get closer to these planets. It's not the way. It's not the way it works. So something interesting was happening enough for them to say, we're going to make great sacrifice of our time, of our wealth, of our own bodies, and we're going to go travel. We're going to go see this king. So in Matthew chapter two, I just want to read this about the Magi. When he, that's Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There's that shepherd phrase again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Hmm, just ethnic? No, there's, there's something more being said here in Micah that he doesn't even understand as he's penning these words whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He will stand. The strength of the Lord. This is a phrase again of Magal Adar, the strength of Yahweh, the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. And then, he, and then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy about Christ, that he's going to shepherd his flock, that he's going to fulfill all the commands. 
So as we sing these hymns, as we sing the first Noel, I want us to think about two things. First, do we, do we find joy in the first Noel? I mean, joy, right? This is the king whose who joy is going to fill the earth because of what this child has done, that he offers freedom from, from addiction, from infidelity, from fill in the blank. He offers freedom so that we can be free in him, free from sin, free from death, free from decay, that we get to have new life in Christ because he took the punishment that we all deserve on himself and offered it freely for all. You find joy in the first Noel, the first birth. One of their movies that we watched the other night was Frosty the Snowman. Not my favorite, not my favorite uh, kids movie of all time. But Frosty, right, they build this snowman, it's a, which is a weird looking snowman. I don't know uh, how the, where these kids learned to make a snowman like that. You know, he, he already had, le- he had like legs and a big body, like only one ball and then a head. It just, I don't know where they learned that from, but they did. Well, what happens, right? There's this, this, this magician. I forgot the story until I watched it. And this magician, he's got this magical hat. And every time the hat goes on top of Frosty's head, he comes to life. And what does he say? Does anyone remember what he says? Happy birthday, right? Because it's, it's his new, it's his new birth. And I think that when we look at this idea of Noel, that's what it should be. It should just be joy and elation of happy birthday. And the hat comes off and then it gets put back on and we go, happy birthday, Jesus. We look at a, at a really incorrect nativity scene and we go, happy birthday. You are the savior who gives me joy. Final application here. What sacrifices can we make for our king this season? And I don't mean this just particularly monetarily as we were talking about finances in the church. Maybe that's one of them. That could be one way. One could be for our neighbors, could be for our friends, could be in the time of COVID of being careful, loving our neighbors in that way, being respectful of space, all those things, fill in the blank. What sacrifices can I make for my king to know I want to do this for you, Jesus, and I want people to know I'm doing this for you, Jesus. Happy birthday, the first Noel. Will you pray with me and then we will sing some songs again together in conclusion as we um, reflect on what God has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this morning. I pray that um, as we reflect on the first Noel, as we look at these nativity scenes, as we think about even just watching your Charlie Brown Christmas and watching the Frosty the Snowman, that we can look at these different aspects of happy birthday and the first Noel. This is the birth of Christ. This is a God who takes on flesh. So God, would you just help us in these moments in the season to remember as Charlie Brown and as Linus put so well, Jesus is the reason for the season. This is what Christmas is all about. It is about the birth of Christ in Bethlehem thousands of years ago that put him on a path that Messiah's work begun, that he started in that moment, taking on flesh, that he could be fully human, fully God, that he could ultimately die for our sins 33 years later. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.